It's November 16th, 2023. This is Rook. Episode 297 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Hello to you from Canada. Salam Dusan Aziz Basham. I hope you are doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. A big show today with two feature guests. Golriz Kahraman, Member of Parliament in New Zealand, will be joining me from Wellington, New Zealand, in just a little bit. First up. And then later in the show, in the Rook studio, the Iranian-Canadian multi-instrumentalist Sina Batayi, who has a brand new song uh, and video out today. Mm-hmm. Coming out today, or out today, I guess already. <laughs> or yesterday, depending on when you're listening to this. Called Tehran. Sina will be in the, in the Rook studio for a feature interview and uh, to perform as well. Hello, Smart Pega. Hello. How you doing? Good, how are you? You know this Golriz Kahraman? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a bad thing to say. Is that a bad thing to say? Um, I mean, in a good way. In a good way, sure. Wow, Chebaloi Shudeh. No, she's, uh, she's very impressive. Mm-hmm. You know, she's a um, uh, human rights lawyer. Yes. First of all, was a refugee from Iran. Mm-hmm. Went to New Zealand with her family when she was nine years old. Right. Uh, overcame, you know, all of the typical migrant issues mm-hmm. that we have, especially post-Islamic revolution. She came like right after the revolution or right. during it around that time. Um, then, uh, no, I guess she came in 1990 or so. She was born. <laughs> she was born at the time of the revolution. Anyway, then uh, overcomes other obstacles, mm-hmm. becomes a human rights lawyer, travels the word Oxford educated. Wow. Bebin. Tahsil Kadeh, right? <laughs> But uh, then returns to after stints in working in human rights uh, law and issues and constitutional law and, mm-hmm. and, and, and tribunals in different places of the world, including my beloved Cambodia, mm-hmm. returns to uh, New Zealand and now becomes a member of parliament and the first refugee or ex-refugee. ex-refugee? Is there a is there a best before date on being a refugee? <laughs> you can't. Are you a refugee forever? No, I no. guess not, because then you she's become. A, she's she's a Australian. citizen. Yeah, right. Well, she's in New Zealand. I'm not sure if she's Australian, but right, New Zealand. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're not the same. No, they're not. I and often Persians make that are not mistake. Arabs. <laughs> not that, that one, there's anything wrong that with that. That one I know. Yeah. Uh, so so yes, yeah, she's in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. She's a New Zealander, a Kiwi. A also, Kiwi, not. I'm, right. I'm, I don't think that's pejorative. I think that's okay. I don't Kiwi. know. Because they call themselves Kiwi. That's true. Yeah. But, um, oh boy. <laughs> we're, <laughs> so, just, we're digging a, it's a getting worse. hole here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this Australian, as you would call her. <laughs> <laughs> or Kiwi, as you would. So she's, uh, yeah, I think that's okay. okay. I think that's okay. I think it's like Aussie. Well, is that okay? <laughs> Canuck. Hopefully. Yeah, I, 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 think, uh, I think it's okay. She Anyway, she's a member of parliament in, uh, in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. She um, she went viral. I mean, you know, a lot of few people would know about her, especially mm-hmm. people who are uh, in that part of the world. Right. And, you know, she's been impressive. She did put out a, out a book about three years ago called Know Your Place, which kind of a, 
a coming of age story, but also the story about being a, a migrant and mm-hmm. identity. And uh, um, I've just finished reading this book, and I find it very, very much, very much resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a as a as an immigrant, it just all all of what she speaks to as the sense of of displacement and not knowing where you fit in as a kid right. and all of that stuff totally relate to that. Um, but I guess she's really become well known for many Iranians around the world mm-hmm. in recent months over the last year during the uprising. And if you remember in the summertime, mm-hmm. there was that video of her that went viral because she was, I believe it was the Iranian ambassador in New Zealand. She was sort of taking him on at a tribunal. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes, I do remember and that. And everybody went, who's this amazing person yeah. who speaks incredibly? And yeah, that's her. That is her. <laughs> The Australian wonder, they call her, <laughs> despite the fact that she's from New Zealand. Uh, so, um, yeah. And, and, you know, she was very, very active during the uprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, which was, you know, at its zenith, at its peak mm-hmm. uh, this time last year. Yes, right? exactly. In fact, today, if I have this correctly, today is the anniversary of the death of Little key on Perfilac. Yes, it so is. So, you know, I'm thinking about the shows we were doing this time last year and that essay I did about key on, it would have been right right around this time. Today, exactly. One year ago today is when he was killed um, during the nationwide protests and, and the uprising, like you mentioned. And, um, of course, Keon was the nine-year-old boy who was shot and killed by government forces in the city of Ize. Yes. Um, actually, on that note, talking about Keon, you know, something that I read... Um, there's been a lot of posts and a lot of uh, messages shared to remember him, but one thing that caught my attention is that his family actually had to, I guess, grieve more in a, a week in advance of today because they were so concerned oh, with, yeah. um, you know, just the increased pressure by security yeah. forces and, and police and things like that. So, well, they've been hassled, eh? They like have. That's been so a, it's much. been really, really hard. Um, you know, like we hear from some of the, the latest was Armita's parents, mm-hmm, exactly. you know, where you, you know, they've been sort of gagged, you know, they can't speak out against mm-hmm. the regime and they can't, you know, without being somehow penalized or, or reprimanded or, or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really horrific. And Keon became kind of a symbol, he one did. of the symbols of the, of the uprising. Keon and his all of the, the the world of possibilities for exactly. this kid who was into invention and and he could see the the excitement in his eyes for mm-hmm. the for the rest of it that what what he was going to do in his lifetime and then that identification with the rainbow. I was just going to say I can't even look at a rainbow anymore without thinking yeah. of Keon. Um, um, little Keon Pierfalak. Well, I'm glad that we remember his name yes. and we remember him. And again, Golriz Kahraman was one of the people. You know that th- this past year was so much about uh, something we've been trying to do on Rook for for years, and it was really crystallized. And during the uprising, this this connection that Iranians feel to mm-hmm. each other around the world um, united for a while, at least uh, in wanting to bring down this regime in Iran. And and Gorouz was a big part of that. Yeah. She's very active right now about the Middle East. I'll ask her about that as mm-hmm. well. So MP Gorouz Kahraman joining us from Wellington, New Zealand, Pega, New Zealand. <laughs> Yes. Different country from Australia. Very different. Got Completely it. different country. Totally yeah. got it. Uh, she joins us in a little bit. And then later in the show, 
Sina Batai. Now, mm-hmm. you know Sina. Of course. Do you, do you know him personally? You probably I don't know, know him personally, but I've gone to many of his shows. So His shows, so so it's, it's interesting. You know, he is he comes from a Santour playing mm-hmm. family. Yes. His dad was a kind of a Santour master. Mm-hmm. I think Keon, uh, Keon. <laughs> Sina. Sina, right. <laughs> Australia. I think Sina is, uh, is originally he's identified with mashad but i think he's he's from yazd he's yazdi okay uh and so and he comes from this family of musicians Mm -hmm. like a musical family uh his dad played the santour he at a young age takes up these these instruments etc also becomes an engineer because because of course you you can't just be a musician right uh he's a control engineer i have to ask him what that means okay I don't you know what that manufacturing is. Manufacturing control? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> so it's, it sounds ominous. It sounds yeah, like a, exactly. a, a Chinese dictatorship, you know, <laughs> control engineer. Um, but anyway, uh, but I don't I'm know. I'm thinking if that, of a Disney villain. <laughs> yeah, Disney villain. Yeah, the control engineer. Um, but he, he, interestingly, if you know the music of like Santour, music tends to be quite sonati, classical. Mm-hmm. And um, so Cena graduates from that into wanting to do modern versions of it mm-hmm. comes to Canada about uh, 14 years ago in his early 20s and starts to work on different fusion music right. uh, and n- now has come to this place where he's he's creating and, and performing this music that would be called kind of electronic mm-hmm. I don't actually know what it's called it's like electronic dance um, trance, you know, kind of music that that involves uh, classical instruments. Mm-hmm. Like he plays the ukulele. It's in fact, I, I saw that he has his ukulele here. I think oh. he's, he's going to play it later Amazing. in the show over top of some uh, some new tracks that he's he's written. But um, but he, he improvises with organic instruments mm-hmm. over top of electronic sounds. Right. It's kind of and and so the shows, as you would know, since you've been to them, yes, it's less a concert. And more kind of experience. I want to put this to him, but it it's, it's feels like a hybrid of a of a concert where you go see a rock band play or something, and a DJ set where yeah. you sort of go more for the experience and the people you're with and the mm-hmm. the energy and the vibe rather than watching something on stage, right? right? Yeah, they're incredible. I mean, like I said, I've been to to numerous of his shows, and like you said, it is really about the experience. There's this fusion of the you know the instruments themselves the the set that's being played and then you have concepts of like the lighting and the vibe and all of that and it's a great time and you know i have a feeling and this bodes well for cena's business life <laughs> uh, by the way this year i've got to ask him about i mean this maybe this will be the theme of the interview but uh, i certainly want to talk to talk to him about it he decided this year i think it was february the beginning of this past year this this year to leave his job Oh. Leave, leave, fully leave control his engineering, engineering. No longer, no, no more controlling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, poor guy. It's I, he's a what do you call it? Electric, electronic engineer, electric, electrical engineer. That's oh, so not a control engineer. Well, no, they're, it's something like an electrical engineer is a control. Okay. You realize that 98% of the people who listen I to Rook are Iranian and, <laughs> and thus engineers, engineers and yes. are laughing at us right now yeah. because they know that an electrical engineer is a control engineer yes. or whatever. They're inter- I don't know what it is. <laughs> Fuck. Well, I'll ask, ask him. Yes. yes. So, he <laughs> so he decided to completely... Uh, leave that career and focus entirely on his music. Wow. He's been traveling a bunch. He's doing gigs around North America, and right. um, so 
So, but what, what I was going to say is that this is going to be good business for him because I, I sense that Iranians, and I say this with no disparagement, mm-hmm. I support, you know, different kinds of music, but I, I sense they like this kind of music, this kind of Buddha bar. I don't know. You say that you're saying this with no, you know, but the, the, I love Sita. I love right Sita and what he does. No, I love, I, but like you're less likely to see I, an Iranian. I'm a little judged right it's, now. I, I know. Well, because I know you like it, right? Well, that's exactly I like it. going to his Tasina show. Yeah. But like, I, I just feel like, you know, if you're, if, if an Iranian, a 30 something Iranian mm-hmm. is driving in a car, yes. it's less likely that they're going to be playing, that they're going to be blasting. Aerosmith, of course, or, I mean, or 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 some jazz from the 1950s, or or even hip hop, right. like maybe Hitchcast or something. But but really, no, you know, not Jay Z or something, and, and even not contemporary Western pop, mm-hmm. but like Deep Dish. <laughs> mm. You get in the car, and I am playing uh, some club music. You like this? <laughs> Why is the accent coming out? I don't know. They have an accent. These <laughs> okay. These people. <laughs> I like how you said. I know you like this kind of thing, and then now there's an accent, and then it's like these people. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, That's right, I'm otherizing Iranians <laughs> that I'm. No, I I do think that there's a. Like I say, that that's a go-to kind right. of musical style for a lot of quote-unquote young Iranians, uh, and because I don't know if it's fifteen-year-olds are listening to it, but I, people that I know, like in their twenties and thirties and forties, like that's like their thing. They're they're into this kind of club sound. <laughs> As Jian stares no, at I, me, <laughs> I, I'm just saying I think no, that there's a predilection for that. There's an appreciation. Mm-hmm. There's a supreme kind of um, um, desire for that kind of music yeah. in, the, in the in the Iranian community and that's why it's good for Sina. It is, but it's also not new. That's what I wanted to point out is that this is not this like new phenomenon that, you know, all of a sudden in the last couple of years Iranians mm. have really gotten into this. Um, because I knew we were going to kind of talk about this, okay. I looked into this and apparently since as early as the 60s electronic music has been present inside iran this, but there's lots of different kinds of electronic music yes but this whole this concept like, of like house and deep oh, house I, and techno I, new, and I am listening to a new song it's so good and they're like oh what that one new song it's uh a buddha bar uh, number three <laughs> like it just, turns out it's like some compilation of just like droning on you know uh, oh yeah I like this stuff and then uses words like droning on <laughs> no I kid I kid I'm, I'm, I'm having a go but uh, yes. yeah, yeah anyway uh, and by the way those are that's a Persian accent I'm doing yes. <laughs> I'm making fun of myself <laughs> my people my uh, family members I don't know um, so yeah I, I, you got my point I did I thank did you. indeed thank you no Aerosmith no Aerosmith right um, but I'm excited to have Sina Batai of here. Of course. And I'm excited to have you here, Pega. Oh, thank you. Always. I, uh, I'm going to ma- make a mixtape of all of my uh, house and deep house music <laughs> Buddha bar for four. you. <laughs> Buddha bar four. Uh, so we're going to have the round table next week again. Yes. Uh, but uh, no more roundup today. We've got two big guests. Okay. All right. Let's do it. We're coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox. If you like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube. If you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. Remember, you can support us and help us out with crowdfunding by going to our website, rookmedia.com, and pressing the Support Us button to keep us alive. Well, 
My first guest today is a distinguished Iranian-born politician and author in New Zealand, known for her remarkable achievement as the first ever refugee to become a member of parliament in that country. Golriz Qahraman was born in Iran. Her family sought refuge in 1990 when she was just nine years old. She pursued her education in human rights law at Oxford, later embarked on a legal career representing cases in New Zealand and various United Nations tribunals across Africa, The Hague, Cambodia. Her extensive work portfolio has included trials of leaders for genocide and war crimes, as well as efforts to rebuild communities in the aftermath of conflicts and human rights atrocities, with a special focus on empowering women involved in peace and justice initiatives. In 2021, Golriz added author to her list of accomplishments by publishing her first book, Know Your Place. Beyond her legal and literary pursuits, she has been an active advocate for human rights, particularly highlighting the violations occurring in Iran. And you may very well have seen her in the news during the uprising of the last year in Iran, supporting the cause of freedom and democracy. And right now, Gulriz Kahraman joins me from Wellington, New Zealand. Hello. Hi. It's nice to speak. It's it's very nice to have you on the show. It's a long time coming. We've been trying to get you as a guest. Thank you so much for doing this and making the time. Oh, it's not a problem. It's a pleasure. I, I have so much I'd love to ask you about. I want to get to your book, your identity as someone who migrated out of Iran but cannot kick her Iranianness. We can identify with that. Your life journey as well as some of the issues going on today. But if I may, as a general question to start, you're a, a human rights lawyer. That's what you did for a decade before you ran for parliament successfully in New Zealand. With that background, Golaris, how how do you... How do you process what is going on in the world today, be it Israel and Gaza, Ukraine, Iran? It really feels like, feels like the world is on fire. That was the title of uh, one of our shows that we did a couple of weeks ago. The world is on fire. Is that actually the case? Or in your experience, are we just seeing all of that more now because of social media and our smartphones? So we think things are worse. I certainly think things are worse when we look at Gaza, uh, for sure, this is the the most um, violent assault we've seen on that community. But I guess there's there's been cycles of this. So my the focus of my work was always, um, it, and it's you know it's kind of funny because I come at, at it as a lawyer. It was really important to me to kind of say these things are enforceable. Um, <laughs> um, because I think in Iran we see so much of our humanity kind of um, degraded without any recourse. So I really, I this is the one thing I really took from studying law in my Western homeland is like, wow, you can go to court and you can hold anyone accountable for these things. So I, I keep looking at these atrocities in terms of um, those justice processes, but it, I think to some extent that loses the real underlying causes of, mm. of um these global events, which as Middle Eastern, as we know very well, which is that, you know, we, there's inequality in the world. Our lives matter a little bit less. Our stories are never told unless we're in a war. You know, nobody's heard of Iranians um, as much in terms of the art we create or, um, you know, we always celebrate Iranian scientists and, and, and poets, and but the West, 
they don't know those stories. They don't mm-hmm. see our kids having birthday parties or um, the fashion that, you know, teenagers are into. Mm. The same goes for Palestinians. They only see us in crisis. And I think, uh, you know, whether it's writing the book or writing for Parliament, a little part of me just wanted to kind of have a different story from our part of the world be visible. Right, right. <laughs> Maybe it would be harder um, for for everyone to turn away when we're being tortured or killed. Right, right. I, I just go, I, I find myself going back and forth on whether these are the worst of times, you know, uh, and I feel like, is this a, a product of getting older where I go, oh, you know, things are just keep getting worse or are we just more aware of them? I mean, throughout human history, there's obviously been horrible things, the crusades, the pogroms, the Holocaust, whatever that have happened. <laughs> yeah. um, but right now it just feels like, oh my God, as you say, from Gaza to, to, to Ukraine, to what we went, went through with Iran over the last year. Uh, I mean, it, it does feel like the world is on fire, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, even if you look at Iran, when I was in Iran from the first sort of almost 10 years of my life, that was the first post-revolutionary decade. Things were so violent. Yeah. I mean, everyone that I knew anyway, <laughs> knew someone who'd been arrested or disappeared, someone who'd, or people would disappear because they would cross the border. Um, you know, it was so bad that you'd lose friends one way or, and it was all the time. The talk of the raids, the executions, um, executions, yeah. everything. And and we had the war with Iraq. Um, so then suddenly you're like, you need coupons to buy butter. And you, mm. <laughs> um, but no one knew about that. They saw Iran as this like fortress of ayatollahs, um, and people who hated the West. So now things are becoming more, so in that respect, I think things may have gotten slightly better in Iran at some point, I was gone. Um, But I remember looking at the pictures and being like, oh God, look at that, Mm. (laughs) look at them thriving. You just don't know. And then now we're seeing this incredible human rights movement um, become visible and make the crimes of the regime much more visible as well which is breathtaking to me. Let me start to get into where you fit into this, because while many of us feel helpless, you, you have carved out an amazing path to your great credit and talent as, as not only a human rights and constitutional lawyer, but also an MP now. You, you it seems, can do something about what's happening in the world. Uh, as we get into your story, you're, you're this kid with a dad from Mashhad and a mom from Ormia who comes to Auckland as a refugee at nine. Does it surprise you how far you've come despite your your relative youth <laughs> well i'm 42 <laughs> that's young um, that's young yeah no it is young it's certainly young for parliament <laughs> or, or any kind of political office i think unfortunately um yeah i guess it's surprising but i think you also carry uh, you know it's it's not like i plan to be in parliament you know it's not like i had like this you know plan and it i was political always um but i think we also carry with us well i i think i certainly have felt it this idea that you can't you can't let opportunities be missed if you're the child of asylum seekers or refugees or probably most migrants of color carry that with them you know the loss of of our parents uh sort of potential Mm. to some extent as sad as that sounds to say in their lives um carries over 
to us so i think it was more like one step at a time it was like of course i'm gonna go to university of course i'm gonna you know push through and do something that was gonna like help the world and then like oh i have to go to oxford <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was more this um a, a less positive maybe um motivation but to kind of f- fulfill um an obligation mm. to the people left in iran and to my parents to kind of go yeah, you're you're gonna use this freedom. <laughs> good, I mean, good for you, and kudos to your parents in the sense that it, it it doesn't necessarily follow that because you come somewhere as a refugee, you become an Oxford trained lawyer. It's a, it's. No, a, and you shouldn't feel that. Like right. I'm not advocating that at all. People should feel free. Um, yeah, right, right. Because, like everyone is, it's not it's not a birthright to have this weird obligation hanging over us. People right. um, should feel just as good chilling out and enjoying their freedom but yeah i I didn't (laughs) i i want to come back to what's going on in the world today and ask you a couple questions about it before we end off but but first take me back so you you just talked about the fact that you were born in that first decade after the in fact you were born uh, you came with the the islamic revolution if you will you were yeah, you, you were born right after it yeah it, 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 it occurred and so your first decade of living in fact your time in iran intersects with the the 1980s which were um by any measure a, a very difficult time in iran you talk in your book about all the adults around you being in a state of shock uh, what what do you most remember of iran as a kid uh, yeah i i think um i mean i have like very beautiful warm memories um of iran as well and you know noruz and making shirinis with my grandma and all of that um you know whether it's urumia and the vineyards or it's mashad with um which is where i grew up and it, it, all our friends were there but i think there was definitely a a when I do think back, there is a very sort of clear, visceral um, memory of that shock and the stress that everyone around me or the adults were in. Mm. So they never stopped talking about um, politics broadly, but like the revolution and what they intended, they were in the revolution, you Mm. know, they were trying to overthrow a dictator um, for more civil and political rights. And, and you know bringing back the economy to you know all of these complex really beautiful aims and they had they were in, in genuine shock and i keep using that that word but i think there was a generation of iranians who um felt like a little bit responsible but also just didn't know what this machine was that was used against them that had like stolen their revolution Mm. you know suddenly women having to my mother having to sit at the back of the class at university she went to university when i was um little you know um because they closed and so you know her talking about what to do to resist that and you know then at the same time knowing that people were being your shallop <laughs> um they're being um uh, beaten and imprisoned for showing their hair that was completely alien to them and i just don't i think that that generation has never stopped talking about hmm. um how that isn't their culture that's so important to them to to kind of document the fact that you know this islamic regime is not our culture um, because they felt responsible, so and, think- and yet when you're born into that, that is your home. That the the, mm. the the dedication of your book is to your parents, in fact, and you basically state that they gave up everything 
for you and and uh, for a little girl uh, to not be, as you say, raised in oppression, and yet you didn't actually want to leave Iran when you were nine. When when did you realize? When does Golriz come into herself and know that you are actually grateful for the choice to to migrate out of Iran? I think like we we were always aware as kids that leaving Iran was like somehow good because people kept trying to leave um mm. <laughs> but it wasn't a dream of mine and so I was kind of like I I was excited when we left but I never real I didn't realize that it meant never returning you know mm. and so mm. I I never really contented with with that part of it for a very long time but um I guess I realized I was grateful probably this is this is going to sound really weird and I've never really thought about this because I I just got on with integrating into you know mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. um but I think when 911 hit <laughs> I was in my sort of first or second year of uni and I had a very clear sense that like Oh my God! This is gonna this is gonna mean harm for the Middle East, yeah. and just feeling like, oh, thank God we got out of there. But of course, as I was growing up, I knew that like I was grateful I didn't have to cover my hair, and I was grateful that I wasn't afraid of like this boogeyman um, postars coming for me. Um, but I, you know, you don't process that. You you're more dealing with the problems of your displacement yeah. i think at yeah. that point you know you you wish you were like everyone else you um you know you you wish that your family was like everyone else's because you're you're a kid um so i think my life at that point was more defined by d- the displacement yeah. rather than the yeah. f- the freedom it's funny, <laughs> that I, it brought. it's funny that you you're invoking of 911 rem- reminds me I haven't thought about this for a while that when 9-11 happened my one of the first phone calls was as one does to my father my, my late father now but of course he was around then and I remember the first thing my father said to me was because in the hours after it was happening we didn't know what who did this yeah. what was this and he said let's pray that they're not Iranian you know not not that it would be okay exactly the same. Not, yeah. not, not that it was okay that no, they, no, no. They, they end up bombing Afghanistan and Iraq but but just to, just that that feeling of oh my god what is this going to mean is this did Iranians do this you know uh, it's, and we knew we all thought the same thing isn't it horrifying because yeah. we were all also you know devastated for the victims yeah but there was some part of us that knew that that whoever in the middle east was going to be you know pinned for this it would be like millions who would yeah. pay yeah 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 and you just not you know but for some reason like why <laughs> and so you know you look at Gaza now and you it's, you just know if you're a middle eastern that it's going to be easy um for your people to be punished and that, yeah, th- yeah, that's kind of terrifying. Yeah, there's no, there's no one, no matter what side of the, the aisle mm. they're on with this, the, the current Middle East conflict, that didn't know that someone that the people in Gaza are going to pay after what happened yeah. on October seventh. You just, just in terms of your migration, you say that one of the things you'll always cherish about New Zealand is that you arrived there with nothing, and that that didn't seem to matter. What tell, explain what that means? What does that mean? Um, I guess. It, it it that kind of dawned on me um as i moved through life that you know we did we did arrive there with 
we were poor, you know, like you're poor when you're a refugee, whether you were poor in your um, uh, original home or not, you, you come with very little and you have no contacts and you have no way of um, sort of climbing that ladder really. Um, but there's, there's a kind of a more or less classless society mm, in the mm. sense that certainly there's inequality in New Zealand. Um, but the statuses that I think would have um, really hindered us in terms of whether if, if we'd gone to Britain, for example, or even the United States, I think we're not really there. It yeah. was an egalitarian society, more okay. or less, that we moved into. And we moved into like a very um, working class, for lack of a better word, you know, sort of area of Auckland and, and, a, and a melting pot area. So lots of South Asian and um, Pacific migrant communities. And so we kind of blended somehow. Um, yeah, we didn't we didn't have sort of the titles that in Iran, you know, everyone's like doctor so and so and like engineer or whatever else. And like that's not a thing in New Zealand. Just those little things like that. Although your your parents um, your parents sound I mean you you describe them as your little hipster parents. They sound yeah. they sound pretty cool. Uh, you know, uh, you, I mean, some of us had more <laughs> they traditional. Were cool. I think they were really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I want to I want to quote something about your that I it so resonated with me about your um, your immigrant experience. Um, you speak so poignantly. I, uh, this is in your book. You say, uh, "Leaving my homeland as a child has suspended me between worlds, so it is near impossible for me to be fully Iranian." But the experience of having fled Iran is exactly why I will never be fully anything else either. Can can you expand on that? Yeah, it was. I did this interview a while ago with my mom um, about the women life freedom um, movement. And like at the end, the journalist sort of said, you know, like, what do you want people to know about you? And you're like, because she was talking about us as in terms of our personal mm. journey. And my mother was like i want people to know um the spirit of iranian women and this is you know she started talking about herself and her, her the movement is like being about iranian women and herself as an iranian woman mm. and i was it was really interesting to me because i had never thought of myself I, i'd never thought that that was my story my story is about being a refugee and and i and she, it was really stunning to me and thank i was grateful that she was so far away from that she doesn't define herself by her displacement at all huh. she's just an iranian woman right. in new zealand right 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 and um and but i connect you know very um naturally with other people who are sort of first generation or that 1.5 generation you know you're yeah. the child of first generation yeah. migrants of color or refugees and no matter where we're from because somehow we have that suspension between cultures in common um you know i i'm of course going to have a far better innate understanding of what's happening in iran than another politician here and so i've been able to sort of lead yeah. that work of yeah. capacity building new zealand's government and parliament on trying to do something about iran but i don't feel like i own that in it, pretty much any part of that revolution yeah. it's like i'm gonna lift your voices because I have some kind of understanding, but like it's really hard and almost embarrassing hmm. for me to kind of go to to front 
something like that as an Iranian person because I'm like I don't I do I do I have a right to that identity? Yes, I think you, um, I think so though because that catharsis that Iranians were feeling around the world emboldened by inspired by these young people in Iran particularly the young women in Iran I think that comes from years of dealing with this of, of of you know this regime being there for 45 years and and the collective trauma and all of that and of course you are very much a part of that um i wouldn't see you i wouldn't see you or even me separating ourselves from it we still have family there it's it's still part of our dna i mean it's it it um maybe you're absolutely right i would never say that we're we can be the leaders of the revolution you know they're on the streets in iran but but to feel part of it for sure i would think no yeah, no, no, I totally, I get that. I think, I think that that's kind of that. But even the fact that we're having that conversation is part of that thing that will always be there for me, where I'm always negotiating my identity hmm. as being, you know, how much of it is Iranian, how much of it is um, the the experience of displacement, and how much of it is, you know, as a as a New Zealander, because of course mm -hmm. that's also very strongly there. Mm -hmm. um, and I am a representative of, of New Zealanders in the House of Reps, mm -hmm. not of Iranians, yeah. but but that lived experience is, you know, is common in New Zealand too. So it, yeah, it's, it, it's just forever gonna be with us. In terms of negotiating that identity, um, <laughs> there is something very particular that a first generation, a second generation immigrant, the displacement that, that we feel that I think, I 100% agree that, that, that I mean, when, when we first came to Canada, my friends were a kid from Pakistan, a black kid who'd just come from the Caribbean, like, like they weren't even Iranians, but they were, we all understood each other somehow, you know, yeah. like, yeah. and, 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 um, and yet it, as you grow, and as particularly if you do okay in life, um, it almost feels like some people who don't, who haven't had that experience, or who've been, say, in Canada or New Zealand for generations, see the notion that of of of, and not to even self-victimize ourselves, but but to call ourselves this have this feeling of being an outsider almost feels like a privileged position. They'll say something like, and I can imagine you would get this, where you know you you self-identify to a certain extent as an outsider. You that's what you call yourself. There's a you have a chapter in your book called Outsider, and yet somebody could look at you and go, come on, you're a successful lawyer, you're an MP, you're doing great. You know, can you really be an outsider? How do you how do you respond if someone says that to you? Yeah, um, well, I think, I mean, I, our identities are very much sort of our own, but they're also projected upon us. So society, certainly Western society, never lets us forget um, as well um, that, that we are of a certain identity. And, you know, maybe that's not always um, a negative. Um, but, you know, just the fact that we all know what it's like post 9-11 to go through an airport um, yeah. or you know, d different types of migrants have very little um, issues getting visas for their families to come visit, um, whereas that, I, that isn't the same for Iranians. Um, and and certainly, you know, by achieving certain levels of success, we approximate ourselves to whiteness um, <laughs> and, and it gives us privilege. Um, <laughs> but there's something always there and i think for me that was made very clear when i first even announced my candidacy um and the sort of fear 
I say that and with empathy, um, but actually it was just hate that kind of bubbled to the surface even really? in New Zealand, but certainly in online spaces. Um, ba- ba- like based on ba- based on you being Iranian? Yeah, well, well, being from the so-called Muslim world, being a refugee, being from Iran, um, being, you know, or, or they just saw my weird for them name and, you know, wow. uh, so just, just as, you know, a nice cross-section of xenophobia, Islamophobia, I'm not even, you know, like I, I don't identify as, as Muslim, but I would never, that's not an answer to what was bubbling up. Right, right. Um, and, and just all of that kind of comes up. Um so it's not it's not it's not always easy to kind of say oh well you know i'm fine now i'm in here because you still have to contend with the way that you're perceived yeah yeah it's true and, and we we still have a lot of work to do in, in our sort of western homelands to get to a point where it, it's not our job to do that alone but... i'm actually uh, a little surprised that I mean, you were first elected as an MP. It wasn't that long ago that that in a place like New Zealand, which I tend to always think is something like Canada, that um, that that would even be tolerated for someone to be intolerant towards you. Because- oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it was to a point where when I did my maiden speech, which is your first speech in Parliament, and you get to kind of just kind of introduce yourself really um, and set out your sort of um, hopes as an MP and your history. Mm. Um, I, it was, you know, it was within within the first couple of minutes of my maiden speech, I had to refer to it where I had to go, you know, I get threats of gun violence because of my identity, you know, because I was at that point I was being, I was delivering a maiden speech as the first ever refugee uh, MP, right, <laughs> so-called. Right. Um, and I had to really center that experience. Um, and then 18 months later, we had the Christchurch mosque terror attacks. Yeah, yeah. So I was getting threats of gun violence because people thought, you know, a Middle Easterner is like such a threat. And, it, you know, that people were shocked right. at that. But actually, it was it was so present that, you know, 51 people were then killed. And they were all from different, you know, yeah. very different backgrounds. Um, but I've like I've I've met Ilhan Omar, um, who was the first refugee uh, to be elected into the U.S. House of Representatives, yeah. and we our experience is so identical and so funny. Interesting, interesting. And she's a practicing Muslim woman. Yeah, <laughs> it's like... and, and she definitely gets uh, you know she has her fair a fair number of detractors. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, in, in social I'm media. I'm literally to... the only MP who's had to have security at the level of like the PM. Wow in New Zealand for that reason when Jacinda Ardern was prime minister I was you know it was which is so funny as Iranians we're like we had to escape Islamists right. <laughs> right. I, actually alive. actually I want to come <laughs> actually that, that's important because I want to come back to that and that's something yeah. that uh, that there are there are a number of uh, Iranians right now some prominent uh, uh, contending with this with it being called Islamophobic depending on what their position is on the, the Middle East etc just just one other thing about when you talk about negotiating identity you know, um, maybe not for you and I, uh, or people who leave at a very young age, but um, but for our parents, there's something that you said in your book that really, again, resonated with me because I thought about my dad, and you talked about your dad. It's very similar to my dad being very, very funny when you were in Iran, and when you moved to New Zealand, he somehow 
lose the, with the change of language and the change of geographic location and the change of job and you know status and the he loses his humor amongst you know the people who get to know him uh Talk to me about that. Talk to me about experiencing that and seeing your dad necessarily having to shape shift as he comes to a new place. Yeah, that's. Um, I, I've read that bit of the book in in readings, um, and yeah, it, it's it's always it's always hard for me to like read it out loud. <laughs> but I I like to share that with audiences in New Zealand because it's, it's it kind of goes through both of my parents having to shift their identities and watching that happen in terms of my dad was I think the most painful for me but I, I really want people to know when they interact with migrants you know that we have an, an identity outside of uh, this person who's having trouble expressing themselves and is just you know doing what you might think is a menial job or whatever and and I think that's what um, meant that you know for my dad um, he suddenly had to interact with the world in a way that for some reason something must have told him to kind of be in his gait and the way that he presents himself a little bit more subservient a little quieter um he obviously the language barrier he can't tell jokes jokes are such and such an advanced um part of language you know you, you have to be very proficient in the language to be able to tell and receive jokes you know um and so he sort of he lost that identity point of being like the center of attention in his friend group and like the witty um funny one that had us all doubled over um and just and it just meant that he was this quiet Mm. a little bit hunched sort of eyes down presence Mm. um that i there wasn't him in terms of what i remember of my childhood and and I think, you know, ch- children of migrant parents do experience that. Yeah, we kind of yeah. experience that unsettling Yeah, it's, 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 it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And especially really when you know your dad is the life of the party in, in, yeah. in Persian. And then, I mean, my dad was a little worse than yours in the sense that he <laughs> he didn't necessarily always stay quiet. He, he tried to do the jokes in English. And then <laughs> people are just kind of like, uh, so good. we don't get it. What <laughs> do you... <laughs> You know? I love that. Yeah. Just tell it. Yeah. Well, it's their problem. It's their problem. Um, it's, it's so hard interviewing someone like you for the first time because there's so much you've done. I, I don't know, you know, I can't fit it all in. So I'm going to, I'm going to bypass years of your life where you travel around the world and you're, you're, you, you attend these human rights tribunals and you you work as a, as a, as an international lawyer. I did want to ask you though, in a general sense about one place in particular and, and a takeaway, if you can, if you will, uh, one of my favorite places in the world is Cambodia, and 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 you um, oversaw an international tribunal uh, overseeing human rights atrocities in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Uh, what what did you most learn? What what's a takeaway that you can share with us from an experience like that, which is an extraordinary one, uh, to go to a place like Cambodia and to to really get into the the, the um, the minutia of what happened there, a place that did, uh, where a genocide did occur. What what did you most learn about the world and that kind of a situation? Yeah, it, I mean, it is a very humbling experience, and and I 
I'd come to it, you know, I say I, I came into human rights law or whatever because of the sense of, you know, I need to try and help right some of these wrongs or whatever. But I think still coming at it from, you know, the angle of a United Nations justice institution, it's quite a Western and not just Western, but like a sort of a first world approach where you're like, we're going to have these trials, you know, and um, and and that that will deliver justice. And, it, I, you know, I still kind of, I do believe in the international justice system in the sense that it individualizes blame so you don't have these cycles of, like, different ethnic groups blaming each mm. other and the conflict continues. It brings kind of uh, tra some transparency, a formal record. It, 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 it has its place. But I think the thing that you kind of learn the most, and, and this is documented in various atrocity trials, is that, like, the victims are not restored by a process like that, the victims actually want to move forward. So what they really need is um, things like, I mean, of course, an acknowledgement, but most of the victims in Cambodia were elderly and they'd lost family members, so they didn't have anyone to care for them. So they actually were like, anytime we moved around to try and explain what, what the trials were about, they were like, we actually need old people homes. Hmm. We actually need care. We need, you know, like maybe we need some therapy. Um, we need, like these yeah. are the types of things people were asking for. They yeah. wanted to be restored in a, with dignity yeah. um, rather than, you know, and when I see people kind of debating at Gaza now, like, is it a genocide? Is it war crimes? And I'm kind of like, we need to stop the hurt. Like there's mm. little kids, like, can we mm. all just agree that like a little kids shouldn't fear being killed at school or in a hospital. Can we, you know, <laughs> and that's what you kind of learn is like, actually these answers are pretty simple. Right. Everyone's just looking for security, dignity to be kind of with their families. Um, and the time to intervene is when the suffering is happening. Like let's not wait another 40 years. The, um, it, it's it's certainly not an academic question for Iranians uh, too when it comes to Iran because one of the things that uh, you know what, what, for all the inspiration of the uprising of the last year and women life freedom that there was this underlying sort of question of well if there is change in Iran then what and even if it's successful change what do we do with the one million people who are connected to this regime through SEPA etc what how, what kind of tribunal what do you how do you address that um, and, you know, you in your book, I mean, you do have an interesting position on this. You just said it earlier in the interview that, you know, we wanted to get rid of a dictator. You said uh, you, you say that the 1979 revolution was about democracy and that the revolutionaries were successful in bringing regime change that that you say magical at one point that it was magical. Um, it, it, end, it ends up getting hijacked by Khomeini and the uh, Islamic formalists. Uh, but Golris, you know that many people now see the revolution of '79 as a as a mistake. Uh, that no, it totally. I mean, obviously, ah. it was, <laughs> but but only because um, of the way that it, it was allowed to be hijacked. You know, so I think I think having a revolution to overthrow the Shah is one thing, but then having a commitment to democracy. Um, is what would define that revolution as successful mm. and and right, you know, righteous. <laughs> um, but overthrowing the Shah and um, you know executing people summarily and stealing the wealth that might have been stolen—it's not 
is not a righteous revolution. But I think that the intention of many revolutionaries was certainly, it was incredible that they had, they rose up for um, sort of equality. Oh, and to the people who would say now, you know, we're obviously bifurcated, we're obviously balkanized, we always have all these, these um, different opposition groups. Uh, we, we, we proved that we couldn't necessarily entirely be unified, at least in the, in the diaspora. Who knows what happens after a revolution? Um, maybe it gets even worse, you know, and you sort of go, well, what's worse? And they go, yeah. we could, the Taliban. What, what is your response to that in terms of change for Iran? Well, change from Iran to me, first and foremost, has to come from Iranians in Iran. Like, I, you know, they are the most impacted community and they have shown again and again that they have the courage, but also, you know, the smarts. Mm. I, I think it's really, um, uh, it's bizarre to me that the diaspora community thinks that we might know best who should lead um these incredible millions upon millions of people in Iran who have already, you know, risen up in mm. very sophisticated ways and different ways, you know, whether it's as human rights lawyers, as young revolutionaries, as activists, they have different groups, you know, there are rainbow activists and there are different minority communities rising up for their own rights. Uh, we, we definitely have a part in this as as Iranians outside of Iran, but that has to surely be to support and mm. lift those voices and hold our governments to account because our governments are definitely um, supporting the regime in one way or another. Um, yeah. So it, it just it just blows my mind that, that there are people outside of Iran sitting around kind of trying to decide who's going to lead that yeah. nation after yeah. the revolution yeah. like it's that is not democracy <laughs> democracy is the only answer <laughs> it's not democracy it's it's even, i would go so i would go further and say it's it's outrageous but but on the it's other hand right. just a little flag that you could wave and go but mm -hmm. part of the problem with 79 was there was no roadmap right so so i am i do have a little iota of sympathy for those going look if we yeah. if we go into this with no plan then what right then, then there has to be a plan but i think the plan is like a process you know having a process in mind the, and and in 79 there was a um prominent charismatic leader from mm. outside Iran <laughs> right. and that was the problem right. <laughs> so you know so actually you know it can't be about some some person I won't say some guy because maybe we can yeah. <laughs> the, it can't be about one person and that's predestined to lead Iran yeah. no matter what and even if it were then that has to come from Iran from yeah. Iranians inside Iran um, we just really have to trust them in terms of they've they've proven themselves to be sophisticated revolutionaries. Yeah. Yes, but the process for sure. Yeah, we have to know. You know, like we have to say, um, there will, will there be a justice process? You know, will there be a truth commission? Um, we have to agree that we won't, you know, be taking people out back and shooting them despite the level of anger because that's not setting out. A human rights-based system for for the next round um we have to agree on how and when an election would be held but that's those are procedural issues mm. and they they calm 
um, people and kind of strengthen the social contract mm. to go on. Um, but, you know, wh- whoever leads, it will be Iranians inside Iran. And do, let me just do a disclaimer for your sake. Your your intimation that Khomeini was charismatic was not an endorsement. Uh, oh, he, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> people he get, people get very... Randomly, yeah. <laughs> there's so much <laughs> anger that they get, they get sensitive. You know, Iranians like, you know, uh, how yeah, dare you call true. him... Yeah. Well, he was charismatic. I think I'm joking, if yeah. you know what I mean. Like, it's... Why did they keep saying he was this charismatic leader? Because we've all seen that video where he lands and they're like, how do you feel? And he's like, nothing. Yes, no, he, but no, there was something about him though. He was the, and I think he was the... For some reason, he was seen as, but that was, that's so dangerous. You can't have a revolution around one guy. No, but he was, He. I mean, think about it. He was the, um, in terms of the, the however misled the notion of we're we're getting rid of opulence dictatorship that comes from a monarchy all right. of that he was the anti version of that is is yeah. the closest you could come to saying that's where the charisma was but uh, um, and you can see I mean there's been examples like it's not unheard of we've had the fall of the British Raj in India followed by you know I'd, I I know India is troubled right this minute but you know followed by <laughs> by a a democracy that more or less were you know worked. followed and by the country the country being divided into two countries the country was divided but you know they <laughs> kind of came through it without an well. islamic theocracy well okay yes yeah, yeah. um like we did <laughs> but we've had south africa that has come through there's there's different versions yeah. of that that we can learn from there's south american nations have come through fascism and you know the and, and, and there is Rwanda and the former Yugoslavic nations. And, and like there is different levels of success. Yes. There is fallouts. Yes. Um, and we can we can learn from that. There's now books um, on all of those post-oppressive um, regime yeah. solutions. Yeah. And there's a there's a spectre. What's what's his name? Uh, the Fati. What's the, the great... Uh, um, our, we've had on a couple of times. Fatali Mogadam. Yeah, there's a great. Fatali Mogadam is a. The, I don't know if you know who he is. He 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 was in a. He's a, he's a, he's an academic, um, but he writes about democracy, and he was on this um, Netflix series called uh, How to Become a Tyrant. He he he's just bri- he's brilliant. He's been on I our do show. Know. Yeah, yeah. I and, know. and he and he. He talks about that there's no pure democracy anywhere in the world, but there's gradations of places that are closer to it than others, you know, and, and, uh, but that we can't sort of look at the beacon of, you know, Canada or something and go, this is a democracy because it clearly isn't. And particularly, you know, um, you, this, this past year, this, this uprising, you talked a, a bit about, uh, with respect to your mom and and the way it affected you, you cut your hair in solidarity at at, yeah. a, at a demo in in New Zealand um, after the killing of Massa. I mean, t- t- tell tell me a bit about how that event and and the the uprising after it affected you personally. Uh, yeah, so we have a very small, um, comparatively. It's small diaspora Iranian community in New Zealand. Obviously, we're a very far away, small island nation. Um, and so that hadn't the community had never really come together in, in the way that we've now seen it come together for the women life freedom movement. And I think, you know, there's all of the kind of um, issues that different Iranian communities have in different parts of the world where when we first moved here, there was a real suspicion among Iranians where it was like, who's connected to the regime? Are they spying on us? It, all of this kind of thing that 
you can't ever explain to anyone, but it kind of existed to divide us. And then younger people started coming as students and they're awesome, to be honest. I wish they were around when I was young, but you know, they, and they don't relate to the people that have been here for the longer. Um, but, but so we'd been a disparate community and then suddenly it, it was just this absolute lightning force uh, where Iranians could come together mm. around this. Um, and we saw, I, I mean, I go to protests a lot as an MP and I, you know, support the Palestine movement. I support trade unions. I support, you know, there's all sorts of human rights atrocities that happen with communities here. I've never seen the level of emotion. It, it was like, I mean, everyone at these demonstrations that we held was mm. overtly, you know, bringing their own trauma. It, it was, I mean, cathartic in a way, but it, yeah, like it was very confronting for me as an Iranian um, person who's kind of, I, I feel like I'd processed that and it was to one side and then to have all of those emotions come up again, you know, I haven't seen my family ever again, people have passed mm. away. Um, I remember the violence too. And so to be surrounded by people who are like, we're angry there was so much anger. So that was the, the first protest was I flew to Wellington from Auckland where I live um, and, you know, or to support that it was important to me. And then we, we cut our hair and I was, I was literally leaving that protest and flying within an hour to the protest in Auckland. Mm. And then I cut my hair again. <laughs> so um, it's only just recovering. Right. Um, but, and then we just kept holding these, you know, and, and they kept growing. And I think one of the most moving things was when we started going to the embassy mm. in Wellington and knowing the ambassador and, and his staff were like inside um, and just people just coming out with whatever they felt like. Um, and when New Zealand police, you know, just necessarily one car was there. Um, and they told us, you know, they said he's just calling police incessantly with noise complaints. <laughs> but that's that's a that's a perfect segue, actually, because you know, a lot of places in the world, including where we live here in in Canada, there's no, there is no there's no Iranian embassy. In in early August of this year, just a, a three three or four months ago, you went viral for this clip of you grilling the Iranian ambassador for New Zealand by saying the Iranian regime is committing crimes against humanity. Um, it was a real moment, and and for people who may not have known you before outside of New, New Zealand, I think many many uh, certainly Iranians around the world got to know who got got to know you and were impressed by that moment. Can you share the kind of reactions that you received for that moment from around the world? Yeah, I wasn't. I don't think I was expecting the reaction or the response that that um, that clip got. You know, it's actually an hour long. The whole committee meeting was filmed, so it's quite. They always are, but you know, there was cut clips of of that particular moment. I was very clear in my mind. Um, I'd been. I'd worked for a while to try and get that guy in front of the committee. Mm. <laughs> um, and I was very clear that the purpose of it would just be to have some more news coverage of what's happening in Iran because it had died down. Um, so I, I, I had called media to come and cover it. And I that's why I had the printed pictures of Masa Amini mm. and, and others, um, because I, you know, I knew that there was a visual element to this that we need, that the reporters would need. And isn't it weird that you have to think that way? Um, but it, it was about getting their names 
and what was happening in Iran back in the in the spotlight. So I never thought that there would be like that piece of the exchange when I was challenging the the ambassador. I can't even remember his name. Um, would be the the central thing, you know. And but but I wanted you know um, there was a picture of Tumaj, there was a there was Massa and and you know so the, but it but it ended up being in the room um the, so there was a lot of reporters and there was some parliamentary staff that had come to watch the session and i think the, the response that will stay with me is more, the response from in the room mm. that you can't really see in the in the clip but after he left like people just absolutely lost like we had staff members that like had to go and have like two hours out and reporters who like kind of came to me and were like i don't know how to report this like i'm in a shock wow and and it's because um and to us it's like that's like of course you're going to put a picture of this young woman that's been murdered in front of that ambassador like to me it's just but but for them it was hearing him in response to that also just riling out like the propaganda messages right and to like be like no this is this is happening in the real world um so it was it it's yeah it, it's our reality as iranians though <laughs> yeah it was a, it was a very very powerful moment and it was a very uh, i think a proud moment for a lot of people seeing you um you, you know we all we all want to there, there aren't a lot of opportunities because the the regime is so um, coated in this, you know, sort of yeah. iron, iron castle, you know, uh, the, inside Iran, that that uh, we don't see a lot of those kind of opportunities where somebody actually takes on um, uh, the, 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 you know, one of the members of uh, uh, directly related to the regime, and the only time we see it is when there's a Western journalist interviewing Abdullah Hion, and you know, it can be excruciating because you want them to ask certain questions that don't get asked, and and they give the guy a platform and stuff, and and so. Let me use that as a segue before I let you go to ask you um, a couple final questions with respect to what is happening in the world. And, and I'm, I'm actually grateful to get this opportunity with you because you've been an outspoken supporter of Palestine. You, you've, you know, you call for a free Palestine. You don't make any bones about that. There are, all, are a lot of people of Iranian descent around the world who have sympathy or empathy about the devastation in Gaza right now. With that said... This is what I want to, I've been talking about this on the show and we've had different people talking about this. Uh, at, at the same time, as you know, there are people very angry at the Islamic Republic regime, Iranians especially, and the sponsorship of Hamas or Hezbollah. Or, um, and when the attack on Israel happens and there's these mullahs cheering it on, um, it there's revulsion at that. Um, how do we square sympathy support for free Palestine with the with members of the regime parroting those kind of lines as if that's something that they care about, if you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I have a lot of discomfort around this issue, of course. Um, it breaks my heart that Iranians have experienced so much trauma under that regime that that now we're seeing people find it hard to sympathize with Gazans that are being literally just slaughtered. Um, I get that it comes from trauma, mm. um, but but it, it it's it's like 
losing our humanity in that way is another way that we're giving something to the regime i think that's how i would i would look at it um it's absolute propaganda that 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 the islamic regime in iran would ever care about ordinary palestinians Mm. they i mean they do fund hamas um but you know do we do we think that the two million people of gaza want to live under a a hamas ruled ruined little city with no democracy do they want to be defined by young islamist men you know um any more than iranians want to have that regime be the face of us outside of iran um and actually there was a letter um that came out from palestine in support of the women life freedom movement that made that point um, that I shared on social media a while ago, maybe I should share it again, actually, um, that ended by saying, we know that the Islamic regime is using us. Yeah, um, I, 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 feel, I, I, I do. I feel like the people in Gaza probably have a much better yeah. sense of things and the nuances and what the, what's going on. Then Mike, my, my one of the things I've talked about, my concern is and and what I would put to you is, is the the well-meaning. Let's forget about somebody who's just sort of, you know, uh, uh, enjoying the sport of activism or something. Like that, but, but the well-meaning Western activist, maybe a young person on a campus in America who wants to, you know, who's taking up the cause of the Palestinians heartfelt and who hears Abdullahian on CNN and goes, oh, this guy's our ally. You know, that's my concern, right? Well, it's like when George Bush was bombing Iraq and Afghanistan and Ahmadinejad right. was standing up to him and everyone started... Right, right, right. It, yes. that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, he's torturing his own people, guys. Um, so yes, Western leftists need to learn that you can be against more yeah. than one guy at a time. Absolutely. Um, but it, yeah, that's what that reminds me of. It's like totally you can be against this regime and also see um, that Israel is committing ethnic cleansing. And you can also see that there are Israelis and Jewish communities all around the world protesting that too. So none of these regimes need to define their people. Um, And certainly we don't need to lose our humanity and give in to that prejudice. Like we absolutely have to condemn um, the deaths of Israeli kids and, and any civilian anywhere um, at the same time as we condemn what's happening in Gaza and condemn the Islamic regime because there's a lot of con- there's a lot of condemning that has to happen. Yeah, yeah well, a, every, like that regime doesn't care about Muslims, right? Are right. you kidding? Well, I, Iranians I, I, do define themselves get... as Muslims. They're not. Yeah, and 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 I and you know, uh, in much the same way, I I, I don't know. I, I I also feel like when uh, you know that some of the some of the sympathy that people Iranians feel or or connection they feel with Israel is because this regime has used every opportunity for 45 years to attack Israel so you, the enemy of my enemy must be that you know it's it, there there are there are so many nuances to this that that put Iranians in a very strange place 
Um, and, you yeah, know, because- I mean, I would say that if if you give into that, then the regime wins. Like we have to hold on to our humanity and, and, and actually instead of condemning, like let's leave aside all the condemning that I do. <laughs> um, we have to stand for people, mm. you know, it, and, and anyone who's um, the victim of violence uh, is is validly, de- you know, deserving of protection. Um, and, you know, those regimes don't get to define who who we stand with and what our humanity means. And you are the human rights lawyer. I appreciate you bringing that perspective. Uh, it is such a, uh, it's a great pleasure to get to talk to you. It's a, uh, I, I really appreciate the perspective. Um, maybe as a final question, your, your, your mom told you that you were going to be prime minister when you were a little girl uh will you be no um no i i honestly i wouldn't want that job um it's a lot i i do prefer to be able to focus on um on human rights issues and be as outspoken as i i have been able to be um you know whether it's electoral reform here in New Zealand or the justice system here in New Zealand or some of these international um, issues you don't get to speak as freely as mm. prime minister um, but I think I think my mum was you know maybe making it a point um, god Iranian women are so ambitious aren't they <laughs> <laughs> well she's got to be extremely proud uh, I don't know if she's still holding you to be, becoming prime minister but no doubt she's um, she's feeling pretty good about her uh, her, her daughter at this point Hopefully, she's not particularly demonstrative. You know, Iranian parents. <laughs> You're wearing that for the interview. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Goris John, thank you so much. Uh, much appreciated. Um, uh, and uh, we'll be watching you from afar. And hopefully, if you get to visit Canada sometime, we get to see you in person as well. Thank you again. <laughs> I'll come visit. Please. Yeah, do. thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Anytime. Bye bye. Merci. Merci. All right, this is Rook, episode 297, and my next guest has walked into the Rook studio. He is an Iranian-Canadian multi-instrumentalist who is increasingly becoming a must-see for a live electronic improvisational dance and trance experience. Take a listen to this. go 
little taste of the brand new track entitled Tehran that has just been released today with a beautiful new video. And it is the musical work of my next guest here in the Rook studio, Sina Batayi. Sina is a Toronto-based multi-instrumentalist and composer. He was born in Yazd, grew up in Iran in a musical family, including his dad, a well-known Santour master named Javod Batayi. Sina started playing music at a very young age, but also, of course, got his engineering degree in Iran before moving to Canada in 2009. At the age of 23, his academic pursuit led him to the Berkeley College of Music where he studied composing and orchestrating for film and TV and along the line Sina has increasingly carved out a unique path as a modern classical Iranian tinged instrumentalist and electronic musician with concerts at festivals and venues across North America Sina's disc- discography includes his debut record Sound of Silence which came out in 2012 and his album Ray of Hope which came out in 2017 most recently this year Sina has made the big move to quit his engineering gig and focus entirely on music. He has a big show in Toronto next week that is a fusion with the Van Gogh art experience. We will get to that. But first, Sina Batai joins me in the Rook studio. Hello, sir. Hello. Thanks for having me. Long time coming. It's finally, we finally got you here. It's really nice to have you here. That's true. Congrats on your new baby, uh, the song and video for Tehran. How does it, how does it feel on release day? Oh, it's very exciting. Release days are always the best because uh, like it takes a long time to just work on the songs and just plan it. And uh, this one also, Tehran, was uh, for like, I made it two years ago. So it was a long process to, uh, and then you wait for the right time to release it. And then when everything is sorted out and when it's out there, it's just nice to watch and see how it goes. What what inspired you to name this piece after the, the capital of Iran? So. There are two ways of making music. One way is that normally you think about the subject and make music, but I'm not that kind of person. So normally I make music and then I think, so what is it? How does it feel like? Partly because you're not writing lyrics most of the time, that is right? True. It's instrumental. So you're coming up with the music and then thinking of the concept after. Absolutely. I was thinking if I if, if there was a lyric, it would be way easier to name the song and just right. go after it. Right. But uh, this song, it felt like a Tehran because it has uh, this different vibes. It was just uh, with the chaotic uh, energy of Tehran, the ups and downs. So the flow of it, if it sounds like really. It's a Tehran. Are you? A, I, I was actually curious because having done a little research on you, it's difficult. To, I never asked you this. I mean, you're born in Yazd, right? Yes. But you're identified with Mashhad, but you spent time in Tehran. I mean, you're like this uh, pan-Iranian guy. Where, where, where was home? Well, I was born in Yazd, and I was uh, living in Tehran for a few years, and then lived in Mashhad for a few years too. But most of my teenage years was in Yazd, and then I went to school in Tehran. So it was. All it's, of them. So where do you consider home? Yaz was where I was born. Ah, yes. That's the go-to. Yes. Do you have a song called Yazd? I was actually thinking that <laughs> How, I have to Tehran gets the song and not Yazd? <laughs> I love <sighs> Yaz, and I actually, I want to make a song called Yaz. My record label is Windcatcher Records, so it's Windcatcher that bought gear, that Windcatcher is ah. a sign of the Yaz, but... Uh, I love that, but I'll make a song called. What are the? Uh, this is where I'm naive sometimes about. What are the Yazdis known for? If if every place the the Rashti people, the Shirazi people, what are the Yazdis known for? Yaz is a very ancient and beautiful city. It's very quiet, and uh, 
but uh, it's known for its min catchers, the signature ah. of, uh, of the city, these huge min catchers that are catching the wind to make the house cool. Uh, so that's one of the signature of the city. Uh, you are beautiful, maybe not ancient yet, like Yazd, but you, you, have, you have the beauty of Yazd in you, it seems, with your music. Uh, I should mention Sabo, uh, Zam- Zam- Zameni, uh, is also on that track. Right. Um, we're big fans of her. She's been on the show a couple times. You guys are increasingly working together. Yes, she's the voice we hear there. That's correct. On that track, I collaborated with her because she has a really lovely voice. And uh, at some point during the production, I felt like you know there could be some vocal on that track. And uh, for me, it was important that the vocal can actually add some beautiful message, a positive message. That's where I'm going with my music. And uh, Saba was here in Toronto, and I was like. Sabo, let's make history together. I call her, and she came and joined me and sang this one. And it's interesting because I think of her, anybody who's familiar with her and has seen her perform, and, and even here in the studio we did a little jam, and she sang. She's quite improvisational. I mean, she's anything but structured, and your whole thing is improvisation. So the two of you together, it's like wild jazz cats of the 1950s doing free freestyle, right? I mean, it's, there's no rules. Absolutely. That's correct. She's such a great improviser, and when we perform together, it's just we are having fun and improvising together. Is it fair to say when you when you do there's there's no two shows alike for you that you you basically when p- people come see you they'll 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 recognize some of the tracks and some of the melodies, but basically you're improvising on stage. That is correct. That's how I like every show to be, and also every show, in my opinion, should be different. I like it to be different, different songs, and it should be different experience for people to come and get out of the. But show. there's no safety net in that, then, right? You, 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 you. I mean, you don't have sort of go-to hits that you can play if you're committed to improvising, and every show is different. What if it doesn't go well? Well, my go-to song is also a curation of the improvisation. So actually, when I play my go-to song, I'm always improvising. So I have to improvise because that's how that song works. I can't really follow something. So right. my hit songs, if I want to play that one, I have to improvise. So, so, uh, so which, which song is that? Breath of Life. Breath of Life, yeah. yeah. And, do you, and so are there moments where, but be honest now, Rook, yeah. on stage, are there moments where you, you're playing, say, a riff on one of your instruments, on your ukulele, on one of your guitar-type instruments, and uh, you know that you can. There's there's a riff and, then, and there's a place where your fingers are going to go that you've done before, and you know it would be easier to do that rather than trying something new. Do you sometimes rely on places your fingers have gone before? Yeah, yeah. So it's not course. entirely improvisation. That's true because it's the form, the whole thing. I know where I want to go in general. All so right. it's not a one notes that I will hit. I know there's a form. That's how I wanted it to be from the beginning. I wanted to make a platform that I can just flow with it. But I know where, where I'm going, like what, where I should go and how should I come back. It's, it's pretty much, I mean, I, I certainly feel this way. Uh, and I'm sure musicians listening, it's kind of the dream to have a bed that you can just play on top of, you know. And I, I mean, by bed, I mean a, a musical sort of track that uh, you've created and then and then you know have fun right you're keeping the fun alive in terms of what you're doing but but there are a lot of musicians who or a lot of people who want to rely on the safety of what they know and not stretch out for fear that of where it might go but uh well i'm an improviser i mean like that's where i'm good at and i know that that would be 
if I want to stick to something that just be that my safety net, it's the improvisation part. Hmm. So if I can. So improvisation is your is your calm zone, is your safety zone. That's yeah. So interesting. Yeah. So I'm from the other side. <laughs> I like to. <laughs> Improvise. You know, the story is you were born into this musical family I mentioned in the introduction. As a matter of fact, I've seen you in concert with your dad playing the Santori and you and your brother uh, uh, playing alongside him. It's like a, a super musical experience. It's like the Von Trapp family or something, you know. Uh, were you always, is it fair to say, you were surrounded by music as a kid? Absolutely. I'm uh, very lucky that I was surrounded by music since I was born. So was it always obvious that you were going to play music? Was it almost mandated? Would you, was your father like, okay, come on, guys. Everybody's everybody's picking up the sand tour. <laughs> actually, it was actually opposite because my father never pushed us to play. So we actually, if he, like we went to play sand tour because it was fun. And, you know, I never actually went to class to learn from him. Mm. Uh, it was just whenever I felt like, you know, I just, I was just actually listening a lot of things because of he had a lot of students. So I knew all the songs. So it was never a force. So we just, we always loved to actually go and play and just showcase it to, you know, to friends. And it wasn't, it's interesting as well that you didn't rebel. You didn't sort of say, I'm not going to be like my dad. You, you actually happily followed in his footsteps to a certain extent. That's true. I think the reason was that there was no force. I know that there are a lot of uh, people who are uh, masters, but their kids, they just don't want to play. You right. know, they basically right. make it there's expectation or it wasn't like that. The, the, the Santour is a, Sonati is a classical instrument. Mm -hmm. I think of classical music as being quite structured. Maybe I'm imposing some sort of Western idea of what classical music is, but even in terms of the Persian classical music I've heard, it, it, it seems that you would have needed to buck that trend to grow out of that to be an improviser. Did you improvise as a kid or did that come later? I improvised and I made my first song when I was 10 years old. And uh, improvisation is actually part of Persian traditional ah. music. So you have to, you're expected actually to improvise. So you're encouraged to do that. It's not like playing Beethoven where you got to hit the right notes at the right time at the right tempo. No, no. It's totally opposite. So you learn actually to improvise from the early uh, time when you're actually learning Persian huh. And and are there rules? I mean, especially with something like Santour, how much can you stretch out or, or how much are you supposed to sort of follow a tradition? So there are there are rules. So you have to follow the Radif. Uh, basically, that's basically the textbook of the Persian traditional music. You have to learn them, memorize a lot of riffs. And then uh, the idea is that when you learn them, then you have to improvise and use them and then try to make your own kind of um, music based on what you learn. There's a, you know, it's, if I were interviewing a, a non-Iranian, like a, somebody who was, grew up in Canada, you know, into a, a family that had been here for generations, it would be kind of surprising that he grew up in a musical family and he was really into music and he was playing music and he was writing his first song at 10 and then he went into engineering. It's it's not as much of a surprise for Iranians. We all sort of get it and go, of course, you know, that's what any respectable kid would do. But but tell me about that that decision to go into engineering. So the music, especially in Iran, you don't need to necessarily go to school. It's heart to heart. So you learn it from the masters. And I had access to that. I was learning. My father was there. I was learning some other instruments. And also, uh, I was really good at school as well. So that path that just uh, I was enjoying, and I was 
on top of the class. So that was that part was also something that you were at the top of the class. I was, yeah. Where you, did you? Where were you at the concours? I've, I've, I've understood that I have to ask this question of where you ranked in the concours. Well, my ranking was actually not bad. It was 123 in the concours. In the country. Yes. For for which uh, test did you have to take the the math test? Uh, so, so I got accepted to because I could just go to any. You were number 123 in the country. Yes. That's huge, right? That's really high. It is, yes. I would want to be in the top 10,000, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're math genius, is what you're saying. It, it's not genius, <laughs> but I was good. I was good at uh, math, uh -huh. so I was good at school. And uh, and you, 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 Asherit, you, you really, you were into that. You you wanted to go into to engineering, or did it feel like, like, I'm curious whether a guy like you, who's even in a musical family, is if there was some, on some level, some disheartening feeling of I know I can't do this as a career this is not possible as an Iranian in Iran to make a career being a musician so I have to be an engineer even though I kind of like it I do well in school it wouldn't be my first choice was it that or was it I love engineering too let me go do that I think it was just uh, you know especially in Iran you are the result of a lot of circumstance that is happening in the society and you're not that much open to choose or at what I want to do at that time and um, I'm glad actually that happened if I was uh, because it allowed me to come to Canada to do all these things. If I was doing music, mm. maybe I couldn't actually immigrate to come here. So it helped me. And uh, how did it allow you to come to Canada? I got a scholarship. So I was able to, ah. uh, to come to Canada to study basically engineering. Ah, so master. you did your you did your degree in Iran and you did a master's in here then yes. in Canada. Yes. I was going to ask you what precipitated you leaving uh, Iran in 2009. Was it always something that you intended to do? I've got to get Absolutely, out? Absolutely, yeah. Because I, I knew that I was picturing myself that I wanted to be uh, outside Iran and explore what is happening in the world. And uh, the path is basically you have to study hard to get scholarship. It's not easy. And that was one uh. of the path. And I was in the right track because of the school and... Um, number 132 in the country was it 132 127 what was it 123 123 <laughs> sorry i lowered you by nine points 132 123 in the country um yeah, and you're a you're a an electrical engineer you're a control you said a control engineer yes when we were, i was talking to you earlier what what does that mean you engineer control in people so electrical engineering has four fields so control engineer was one of the uh, subdirectory of electrical engineer. So basically, it was like controlling uh, things. And I guess, I guess from the when I was a kid, I always liked uh, these lights that you can actually turn and it changed the, mm. the light. I remember I was like five or six, and I was like, oh, I like to control things. So I think it came from that part. So you, what was moving to Canada like for you? It was. Uh, I think it, it was. It was quite easy. And uh, I loved it because um, I had a scholarship and I came at the age of 23. Everything was very new and uh, I came by myself. I had no one here in, uh, I went to Montreal and uh, I studied my degree and it was, uh, it was really fun. Well, you came by yourself uh, and you had no one here, you say, but I'm guessing you probably did know once you get to Toronto, 
uh, and there's a bunch of your cohorts from the same age group who also did engineering in Iran who've migrated to Canada. Like, did that happen for you? This is a this is a particularly interesting place, Toronto, the, the Greater Toronto area, because there's people like my cousin, um, one of my cousins who's an engineer, who you know went to Sharif and all his buddies that he went to university with happened to live a street away from him in, in Toronto now, which is not something you would almost find in any any sort of pattern of migration in other parts of the world. But it is true for Iranians in Toronto and particularly for engineers who did schooling there. So I, I on that level, there's probably people here that you knew in Iran that you now have a community here with, right? That's true. I was actually in Montreal, but the funny thing is that I came with a friend of mine and we both get the same scholarship from the same professor and then we were in the same chess club in Iran, in the same university. So I knew I had friends that, you know, we actually came together. So it was just fun and easy. I love how much of an academic nerd you are. You, you're 123 in the concours. You're a math genius. You're a, che you're a chess player. Uh, I, I, I as well am a chess fan. So I, I'm not sure. Where did you rank with chess? Are you number 123 in the world at chess as well? Um, tell me about you know that first album you put out. So for a while, you've got this parallel life going in Canada where you're an engineer uh, and you're also doing your music. And when I first was introduced to you a few years ago, you were you were you were seen as the, the the Santour guy. You were kind of always a, you always had a modern twist on what you were doing, and you you had other band members and things. You weren't this super hyper classical guy, but you weren't as well the electronic sort of um, trance oriented. Uh, um, dance-oriented uh, kind of musician that you are now. Tell me about that journey musically from w over the last decade or so that you've been in Canada, how you've moved to where you are now. Absolutely, that's true. So I, I did my first album in 2012, and that was uh, just sound tour because the way I was playing it was kind of like modern. It wasn't traditional. So, uh, And then uh, gradually I added different sound, and I remember first time I was at the artist residency at BAM Center for Performing mm -hmm. Arts. And in my studio, I had only my center and a mic. And I remember that there was this guy in next door and you know, he has a lot of gears, like the gears that I have right now. So I have a lot of pedals and things. And he was like, is that all you have? I can't, he couldn't believe that I had only center with me. But in that residency, I met, uh, there was this uh, cellist there and then uh, there was uh, another uh, woman that was uh, arranging things and I started to arrange my song with cello and we mm. played it there and that was the start so I feel like oh actually I can actually do that and it, it's uh, I'm still playing Santour but the other color that I'm just adding it just works perfectly and I started to add different instruments to it I added guitar bass guitar and drum and then for a while I had my acoustic uh, band before I moved to electronic. You're doing more groove oriented stuff now. When did that become something you were excited by? I remember exactly when because it was at my friend uh, birthday and I was listening to this uh, song. They were playing uh, some DJ sets and I was like, oh, this looks, I, I really like this song. Mm. And I, I know that the next day I started to see, let me try to see if I can remake this one. I remade the grooves and I made my first uh, electronic songs called Summer Days and I played Baglama and Santur on it still I had some uh, traditional instruments on that 
But I can say that the, um, the jumping point for me was the, the COVID during the COVID time. Uh, it allowed me actually to learn about the electronic music. The Explore beats. And yeah. 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 And then um, I remember that I booked uh, the, my show after the, co the COVID, the first one in February 2022. And I was like, let me try and make uh, these songs. And if it didn't work, I will ask my bandmate to join me. I didn't tell them that I have a show. Let's see if it didn't work. Maybe I'll ask them and we play the acoustic sets. But uh, and luckily it worked out very well. Yeah, so, I think I was at that show. I, it's It's been a, a really cool journey. I, I don't see you, having seen you on stage a few times now, I don't see you play the Santour as much now, right? In terms of what you're doing musically. What are the other instruments that you have a series of oddly shaped and small sized guitar type instruments that I don't always know exactly what they are that you play. What are they and where where do your fingers most uh, go these days? So that's true. So I don't play center any longer now, but uh, I used to play oud when I was growing up and I played sitar, Persian sitar as well. And uh, so I, I figured that, you know, if I want to do electronic music, I need uh, some instrument that is not acoustic because with the mic setup, it doesn't work that well. And I, uh, I was like, all right, if I can find electronic oud, which um, that's what I have. I have a multi oud, which is like a oud, but it's electronic with a pickup. Uh, it could just work perfectly because I can just play that easily. And I also picked up the ukulele. I bought one when I was living in Korea. So I bought a ukulele and I was playing like sitar, not like a ukulele. And then I figured out, actually, I can actually play ukulele like sitar. And then it has a pickup. So actually, I can just have this instrument and just play melodies. So very cool. Electronic setting, it would just work perfectly. So those are now my two instruments that I tour with mostly. What, sorry, when did you live in Korea? I lived in Korea. <laughs> That's, you just threw that in there when you were living in Korea. When was that? I lived in Korea for a year in 2000. Uh, I think it was 2015. Whoa. Yes. And how was that? It was awesome. I loved that time. It was one of you the learned things. the ukulele when you were in Europe. I picked up the ukulele. I, no, I bought it. Uh, <laughs> not not something that we identify with Korea necessarily. The no, ukulele. Yeah. I was looking. I, I was like, I'm, I'm, I need to have an instrument, and I went to this huge music store in Seoul, and I just bought the acoustic a tenor ukulele, and I was just like trying to play. It's yeah. interesting. Like if I'm thinking about the oud or or, or the ukulele, certainly, uh, it it's a very it's an entirely different instrument from the santur. I mean, the center you're you're playing with mallets in your hand. The these are guitar. Like I say, I keep calling them guitar type instruments. It's probably not the right, but that's what I the, the way I I reference it. Do you do you think as a musician, your abilities transfer from instrument to instrument, um, or or were they two completely th different experiences in terms of learning to play these different instruments? No, I don't I don't think they are two different. Uh, obviously, I'm more comfortable in Santur, but I have been playing oud and sitar for a while now that I can transfer things with those two instruments too. So that's why I never said that I'm just a Santur player. I'm an improviser. So, And then you are limited by, I believe you're limited by the techniques in any instruments that you pick up because you know you have the knowledge, you have the melodies in your in, in your mind so if you can actually learn the techniques so you can transfer whatever you have uh, in your in your mind so I think so Sina I've been looking forward to talking to you about this because you made a big decision this year in, in February and again um, 
well, I was going to say as an Iranian, but it's not even as an Iranian. It, when you have a a career, a stable career, as you did, as you've had with as an engineer, and and um, it's something you excel at, as you say, uh, it's a big decision to decide to to step away from that career and focus entirely on music. And if you'll forgive me, you're not 19 anymore, too. You know, that's a it's a little bit more. Um, I don't know about easier, but it's a little bit more um, less risky. It feels when you're like a teenager or something like that. I'm gonna try music. You know, somebody in their 30s now is deciding, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna carve this new path and walk away from another safety net, which is your engineering. Tell me about that decision. So I always wanted to basically uh, for a long time that I knew that eventually I will move to music. That's where I am, my passion is in and where I'm good at. And then uh, I built the whole thing to, I built that point that allows me actually to do the switch. Uh, Meaning what? You saved a bunch of money? No, not what at is, all. What is building? No, it? no. Maybe making the fan base, making the music, uh -huh. and you know, uh, having an audience that they wanted to come to listen right, to. You because right. I always thought that you know, uh, as a musician, you have to rely on your own music, not on anybody else. Mm. So I always wanted it, my career to be in a way that people want to come to my shows to for themselves to get something out of that shows. And so I put a lot of music, and then uh, I was waiting for the moments that it connects with people that allowed me to actually do mm. the switch. And when I did, actually, I had a concert in Toronto, and it was a sold-out concert. 400 people came, and and uh, I was like, this is a nice, right time to do this switch. And at that time, the Bread of Life was not viral yet, so, <laughs> and then it happened later on. But I built the whole thing, and I think in February, that was the right moment. Was it scary? It was, but at the time uh, I was thinking uh, it's all about the mindset. I believe that, you know, if you just think it's scary, it would never happen. And I was trying to picture how would it be if it just worked perfectly. I was trying to imagine in my head that, oh, how beautiful it would be mm. if I can actually think about just what I want to do, like what experience I want to do and have. And, um, and it worked just so perfectly. I recently had a show in San Francisco. It was sold out. So things are going really well, and I'm really glad that I... But it's a different it. kind of energy. It's a, it's a, You have to hustle as an artist. You, you, it, it, I mean, not that you don't have to as an engineer, but you don't sort of have that regularity or that regular paycheck. You, It's a whole different paradigm, right? No. So for me, luckily, it's not like that. So I'm much more comfortable right now from the music than I was at the engineering part. So uh, for my case, luckily, it's just working very nicely for me. And uh, so it, there's no hustle. But I knew that even if there was a hustle, so maybe I have to work a little bit harder for a, for a while and then uh, cut from some things. Um, so it wasn't, I, was really, I wasn't really 100% comfortable financially to do this switch, but I knew that I'm the right way, I'm the right path, and it would just work. Just what did your dad say? My dad always supported him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was okay with it? Absolutely. He didn't say, seriously? You're, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're 123 in the concours. Yeah, no, my <laughs> mom was a big a, a big supporter because as she said, uh, uh, she actually, her, her word was very nice that she said, so you know, at the end of the day, even if things doesn't work out, you are an engineer with 10 years of experience mm. overseas. So, you know. Right, just, right, right, right. You, you can know, easily go back. Absolutely. To, yeah, yeah. And I think that any move that you do afterwards, you're going towards something better. It's not mm. out of desperation, you know, so you're doing something because you respect yourself you want to do something better mm. so good things cool. if and if nothing works you know, there's always korea you Absolutely. can go back to uh, <laughs> korea your go-to place uh your shows 
are I I feel like they're an interesting hybrid between a live rock concert or you know that we kind of thing we'd be used to seeing it uh, and a DJ set where it's more of an experience and less about what's happening on stage and more about the vibe and feeling and people dancing and sort of having a good time. Um, I, that's got to be conscious. I mean, you're, you're, you're carving something out that seems to be a, a hybrid of those two experiences. Talk to me about that. Absolutely. So I always knew that uh, I wanted to play live. So that's, that was my thing. I wanted to be able to improvise and play live. And uh, even the first show that I did, I did my electronic music. I knew that if I could get to a point that I can improvise, that would work. That I was really confident mm. about that part. And so, what do you mean if you can get to a point that you can improvise? So if I can have a bad track of the electronic uh -huh. music, that you know, it just I get to the point that I can just improvise on that track. So that will work because I knew that you know, improvisation. I could just transfer my feeling, and that will connect oh, with the audience. So and then and then now I'm trying is a, is a process that I'm trying to make it toward electronic music concerts with that same energy, but still I wanted to have the live um, part that mm. I can just compose live on the stage and just enjoy and just uh, create in the moment. I almost feel like people don't come like the way you would go to a Coldplay concert to see your favorite songs played. People don't come with that agenda to your show necessarily. They're, they're coming to an experience, it feels like. I, I like that one. Actually, people are coming now for both of them. Now their their songs are out, so a lot of people come to hear Birth of Life. Basically, they wanted to experience that energy because right. uh, and uh, the experience of the live concerts. Because for me, it's really important what experience I'm creating for people. I don't want to just have a concert. I just want to give them experience. And this experience of all people together, the energy that they have, it just when people are dancing, it just uh, it just gives a very good energy to everybody that comes to that show, and they know that they're gonna come, they're gonna go home with an elevated state, and so that's uh, that's something that I'm built building, so that people know that if they come, that's what they. It's get. fun watching you on stage because you have this kind of little shy grin on your face, and you you're just kind of grooving along. Sometimes I almost feel like you go into a bit of a a trance uh, you know you're enjoying the music that you're creating as you're creating it for people who are dancing to it tell me about your mindset during the show if you can get into that headspace absolutely that's actually my goal to be able to maximize that part that I can just let everything go and just be fully in the moments and that happened for the track Breath of Life in that show that you were the first time that we, I played it it was such a beautiful energy in the room yeah. I improvised that piece there on the stage and that recording is now the viral track because you know I was full in the moment and it was captured and I was feeling really good. And when that happens, you know, it's just beautiful things happens in the moment. And that's something that I wanted to go watch. I want to go out to watch an artist and just see that person really vulnerable and right on the stage and creating something beautiful. Isn't it just, isn't it just beautiful to It is, but it's a particular kind of energy. You don't you don't jump around the stage. I mean, you do some jumping, but <laughs> but it's not erratic. You're a very calm personality. The only this is the only version of you I've known. The version that's here right now, you know, off camera, off off of an interview, at your home, at a concert, whatever. You just like you seem a very calm personality, and that's what we see on stage too. It's almost like 
are, do you practice meditation or is that is is the experience of performing almost meditative for you absolutely i do practice meditation a lot because i think in order to go to that state you know you have to be in a in a place that can just bring that out and put it on the stage and put it in your instruments so if your mind is just going all over the place if you're distracted so definitely you wouldn't you wouldn't personally enjoy what you're doing mm. on the stage so it's really important to work on that part that when you go on the stage you are just full and how do you work on that i do a lot of i i wake up really early and i have my routines and i do a lot of meditation when do you wake up 5 a.m every day every day you wake up at 5 a.m every day i wake up every day at 5 a.m <laughs> when do you go to bed at uh, 9 30 10. The, the rock and roll star 9 30 p.m <laughs> in bed <laughs> yeah i know it would be hard for my career as a musician so that's why don't I let to. that get out <laughs> don't let people know that yeah that's that's amazing so you don't i mean you're not you don't feel like you're missing anything by going to bed at 9 30 p.m no absolutely you, you become more selective you know you choose what you want to do and then um you know there's some nights that i want to go out and check things you know you definitely do that but the majority of time that's what i so when you're playing a gig, it's literally past your bedtime. That is true. <laughs> but, you know, I like to be in a control to be able to ch do my shows, you know, to dictate what I want uh -huh. at what time I want just to play. So luckily now it's I can't control that at, for now, but we'll see. So what do you do when you wake up at 5 a.m.? What's the first thing you do? So I'll do some uh, meditations, journaling, and then I'll go to do my workout. I'll go out to a place that I go, and, and then I'll do my morning walk. Um, and that's that's always the routine you work out then walk yes work oh. out breakfast and then walk that's all right so and then like it's still 7 30 or 8 p.m you have yeah. the whole day ahead of you yes you see the sunrise when you're walking and then that's amazing i love that i love that you do that and and being a full-time musician hasn't changed that it actually it's, it just it made it easier because now i know that when i'm waking up at five i i don't have to go to work you know i'm just waking up because i want to because you know I need more time to do the music. Mm -hmm. If I need to go to engineering, if I need to go to a job, I think that maybe it wouldn't work out because now I'm waking up because there is a time limit. Now I don't have a time limit and I can just walk for two hours if I want to, you know? So if you if you were out late with friends yeah. and you come home at two in the morning or one in the morning, do you still get up at five? No, you have to sleep is very really important for your body. So I will sleep more if I'm just, I see. yeah. So you say it's, you don't actually always get up at five. No, that's your, that's your, uh, aspiration is to get Abs up at five, Absolutely. but you have to sleep early to yes. make that happen. That's All true. Right. Yeah. It's like a bit cheating a little bit. You don't <laughs> actually get up at five every day. No, of oh. course, you know, it's just, uh, your body needs <laughs> How much rest. of this is a real, how, how honest are you being in this interview? Uh, uh, how, how many days a week do you get up at 5 a.m.? Seven days a week. Uh, if I go out, I will not. But I'm not going out. Uh, you don't so ever go out? Rarely really? uh, right. at night. But the times that I go out, I just wake up later. You're going to be out next week. Yes. Because you have in Toronto next week, for those listening in the greater Toronto area, sometimes I feel bad that we're so Toronto-centric with this program because most of our audience is not in Toronto. But they're around the world. But for those who are in Toronto, you're doing this gig, this show that is in conjunction with this Van Gogh 
uh, immersive experience. Anybody yes. who's seen it, been to it, as I have, it's a spectacular, or even seen videos of it. It's this amazing experience where you walk into these these galleries, these rooms, and there's Van Gogh projected all over, and there's music and atmosphere. You're somehow doing something in conjunction with that. Tell, tell, tell us what it is. That's true. It's a very unique production. I'm very excited about that. And the idea was that I wanted to do a concert in a silent disco format where you have headphones, and then uh, people, everybody has headphones, and the sound actually will go there. And basically the reason was that I wanted to bring the Santur back to my sets because that's something that I played better. I play handpan too. So those are acoustic instruments. I wanted to explore that. And I came up with the idea of just putting it in a, and then I came up to the uh, idea of just doing it at Van Gogh exhibition. And uh, it everything worked out. So now in this uh, show, there will be Van Gogh exhibitions running and then I'll make the music based on the paintings right live there with center and handband uh, so and then so people will be wearing headphones yes and they will be walking through the immersive experience or sitting or whatever and you'll be in the room playing live and we'll be listening to you on our headphones that is correct yes that would be one part of it on the second part i'll play my uh songs my electronic songs ah. audio first and do you are you going to improvise or do you have pieces that you've written for these van gogh images i will improvise i will make music right wow there. yes it's a very cool idea thank you yeah i want this is just another thing that i think it's fun to create different experience for people mm -hmm. and i think you know that would be it's a very unique thing because you know if you look at it there's only one place in the canada that you can have van gogh immersive experience there's five in North America, so it's a very unique experience, yeah. and I love to be able to do that and just play music f on that exhibitions for people to just come and experience. And then what we did, we actually made it all age. So now people mm. from like seven, they can come because they can't come to a normal concert. So right, because you do, you like to play at clubs, which because uh, yeah. people can move. You don't want to be in a theater where everybody's sitting the whole time. That is true. But then kids can't come. Well, this is going to be interesting. Yes. The Van Gogh. Good, good, good for you, man. Listen, it's such a pleasure to finally have you here, and I'm so um, uh, happy for you with the, your your new release today. The video, by the way, is beautiful. Um, it looks like there's images from Tehran, but it can't be Tehran, right? It is from. It Tehran. is Tehran. Yes. How did you get those images? So because I wanted to, because the name is Tehran, so I have to have some footage from Tehran. So I worked with this uh, uh, film editor and filmmaker from Tehran that just edited some of the footage. Like the, the one when shot it themselves. Yes. Wow. Yes. So it's not like the series Tehran that's shot in Greece. It's no. actu actually actually. Uh, it's actually actual footage. It's a beautiful Tehran. video yes. and it's a beautiful song. Thank you. That said, I asked you if you would play something for us in the studio, and I love this because this is you living up to your moniker as the improviser, your self-proclaimed uh, identity as the improviser. You said you you're going to play something that you made up yesterday. Yes. That is correct. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So tell tell us what you're gonna play for us. So the song is called Seven Pawns, and there was this. Uh, I was uh, in my morning run. Uh, I go to Seven Pawns, like little lakes, little yes, ponds. Okay. That's true. So it's uh, it resonates something from when I was a kid. Uh, I don't know. It was a Darban or Darake. There was a there was a place called in Farsi called Haft Hose, and I remember that clearly. It was in a. Uh, in that. Seven pools. Yes, so, yeah. seven pools. It was it was it was really beautiful. You could see the river and the okay. seven pounds. And then uh, the place that I go for a meditation and a walk, uh, it has this kind of seven 
Pond. And I was like, oh, that could be a good song title. And then I came home, I was just working on something. And then the idea of this song came that I just made yesterday. I, I, I called out that that would be a perfect name for it. And uh, the reason I want to play it is because uh, it's just, uh, it's aligned with all the other songs that I was uh, composing. I feel like, you know, your music should be able to elevate people's states. You know, there are a lot of sad songs these days. So mm. if I can actually make things that change that their mood, I win. So, and then like, if I play them, I, should, I would, it would be a therapy for myself too. It's mm. a positive song I'd like to play. And then you can actually add something to people's life. And you're gonna, I, I see you got the ukulele. Is that what you're gonna play in this? Yes. All right. And I, I'll assume some of this is gonna be improvisation. Uh, improvisation? Yes. All right. Now. Yes. Amazing. Let's do it. Sina Batai live in the Rook Studio gets set up here performing uh, a piece that he he wrote yesterday. Given the opportunity to play the song that he released today, Tehran, he's playing something that he improvised on yesterday. I love that. Uh, a piece called Seven Pawns. All right. I think Sina's set up. Take it away. <laughs>
All right. Nicely done. Live in the Rook studio, that's Sina Vatsai performing a piece called Seven Pawns that he just actually created yesterday. That's uh, This is less than 24 hours old, folks. Nicely done. Thank you very much. How did you feel? Amazing to play live for the first time. Premiered at Rook. <laughs> you premiered it. And uh, <laughs> how was your improvisation? I like it. I, d I don't know how much of that was improvisation. It wasn't so. <laughs> only you know. All of it was improvisations, and uh, no, I, I love it. I love this piece. I know that I'll play it a lot. It's a really nice concert. piece. It's a really nice piece. It's been such a pleasure to have you here, man. Thank, Thank you. you. Congratulations on the new song, Tehran. Congratulations on Seven Pawns, on your Van Gogh gig next week, uh, and uh, on this, on all things going well for you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Sina Batai, live here in the Rook studio. Do catch him. If you're in the greater Toronto area, get tickets for his uh, gig next week, which is a fusion of his concert with the Van Gogh Immersive Exhibition. I don't think you want to miss this. Where can they, people get tickets? Go to your website? Yes. Or, which is what? SinaBatai.com. SinaBatai.com. We'll put a link to that in our description underneath this uh, episode as well. Thanks again, Sina. This is full time for Rook for today. For all things Rook related, RookMedia.com is where to find us. That's also where you can support us by pressing the support us button and becoming a Rook member on Patreon. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Savvy Roham, Smart Pega, Methodical Kaver, Talented Anahita, Bearded Omid, and Super Parisa. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please do subscribe if you haven't done so already on any or all of our platforms. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Find Rook on Instagram at Rook Media. Not to mention Twitter and Telegram and LinkedIn and everywhere else. In the meantime, as ever, Mizu and Bashim.